Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. There's a story. It's fictitious, but there's some truth in it. And it goes like this. Uh, the story is told of Jesus on his return, you know, his return to heaven. And after denying, or I'm sorry, after dying for the sins of humanity, Jesus was greeted by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel says, you know, what a wonderful thing you did, Lord, um, dying for the sins of humanity. It's so good. Uh, does the world know about it? And Jesus answers back to him and he says, well, not so much. A handful of guys around the Sea of Galilee know. And he says, Gabriel says, well, how is the rest of the world going to understand this? And Jesus says, well, I gave those guys the message. And so I'm trusting that they will carry my message throughout the world. And Gabriel's like, um, but what if they don't? I mean, what if they decide to go back to fishing? What if they get afraid? What if they get tangled up in relationships? What if they get too busy? What if something else comes up? What happens if they don't do it? What's your plan then? And Jesus replied, I have no other plan. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus poured into like 12 guys and because of their faithfulness, you're sitting here today with a Bible that countless people have died to make, you know, so you could have it. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus had no plan B. You are Jesus' plan A. That's a heavy thing to be part of, isn't it? Because God calls, because God equips, because God sustains and sends believers to preach the gospel, because we are his plan A, we ought to be willing to respond to him in whatever way that we can. And that's really the point of the message today. I've called it, Jesus calls and sends 12. The outline is so simple. Two points, 12 called, 12 sent, starting at verse 1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, uh, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and uh, Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Heavenly Father, again, as we look to you, the God of the word, we approach your word humbly. We want to submit ourselves, surrender ourselves, and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Beyond the words of a guy standing up here, would your Holy Spirit anoint the words, anoint this Bible study, Father, that we might understand with the eyes to see, the ears to hear. We ask in Jesus' name. When he had called his 12 disciples to him. Now, in the scriptures, there's this, the word disciples is used in a couple of different ways. There's the narrow sense. There's the broad sense, right? Anybody that's like a follower of Jesus at times is called disciples, right? But then disciples also is used to describe the 12. They're also called the apostles. Now, the word apostles is also used in a broad and a narrow sense in the scriptures. We'll talk about that in a second. 
Look at what it says in verse one. And he called his 12 disciples to him. Now I couldn't get past verse one because I love this. Look what he says. He called his disciples, his 12 disciples, what? To him. See that? In Mark's gospel, uh, same account, it reads like this. Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him. That's excellent, isn't it? Sometimes we think God just wants us to do stuff. But God wants us to do stuff, but only after we've come to him. But he wants us to be with him, right? It's very easy to get busy in your life and just be doing stuff as a Christian. And you think, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm doing life. I'm going to my job. I'm handling all my responsibilities. I'm paying my bills. I'm doing my chores. I'm doing all the things that I have to get done. Are you doing those while you're with him? Because that's the first place to go, right? That's the first thing. Before Jesus is about to do this first missions trip is he calls his disciples to him. Before we do anything for Jesus, we also must be with him, come to him. Twelve is a significant number, right? It corresponds with the 12 patriarchs of Israel. And now, so it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm not going to get too in-depth with it, but study that out. It's interesting how God, you know, had the 12 sons of Jacob become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel kind of bombs it, you know, as you know, or maybe that's not a good word to use. They, they blew it, you know, uh, a lot of times. And now, so God, in this restoration, he comes back with 12 also. It's kind of a neat thing. It also says that in, in the scriptures that during the millennium, that uh, the 12 apostles will rule and reign on thrones with Jesus. 12 is a significant number. He gives, he gives them power, going on in verse 1, over unclean spirits, which are demons, uh, to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. So I, what Jesus is doing now is he's going to expand his ministry into, um, by, by putting people under authority, by putting his disciples, these 12, under his authority. He's going to give them power is what it says there in verse 1. You see that word power? There's a couple of words translated power in the Bible. One's translated dunamis, where you should think of that as like dynamic. In the book of uh, Acts, it says that power will come upon you to be witnesses uh, to the you know, area around Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and beyond. That word is power. Uh, dunamis, that means like, uh, it's where we get the word dynamic. This word is the word exousia. Now, the word exousia, not only is it cool to say, uh, it means delegated authority. So Jesus delegates these 12 authority, these specific 12. He gives them power to go out, delegated authority, to do the exact same things as he was doing, as he was preaching. Now, although this equipping that he gave to these 12 disciples is unique to them, there is an overarching principle that when God calls you into his ministry, that he will equip you. Right? He might not equip you in this exact same way. This was, I believe this is a unique to them. That this is delegated authority to them for this mission. But God will equip you. That's a good principle you have to remember as somebody that wants to serve the Lord. Whether, it's, whether you want to serve the Lord formally in a church, whether you're ready to start serving the Lord in your home, whether you're, you know, wherever you're going to start serving the Lord, understand that he equips those he calls. A lot of times we get stuck, we think God only calls the equipped. It's the other way around. God rarely calls the equipped because, you know, why? They're self-confident. And self-confidence does not work in the kingdom of God. Self-esteem, self-confidence is like the enemy of following Christ. It really is. We need God-esteem, 
God confidence. And so I know uh, that I know that thought process happens very often of like, I don't feel equipped, Lord, I don't feel equipped. Awesome, because now you're going to pray to him and you're going to ask him for equipping. Maybe you've been reluctant to start serving because you say, I'm not equipped, you know. The whole thing is, is he's going to equip you. You have to trust that. And it doesn't always happen overnight. You learn, you know, in the school of discipleship with Jesus. You know, you get in his word, and I could talk about that for a long time because I've learned so many lessons the hard way, you know what I mean? But I know he teaches you, right? So now the names, verse 2, of the, the 12 apostles. Now, as I mentioned before, the, the word apostles used in a, here's an easy way to think of it, capital A, lowercase a. The Bible calls people such as Barnabas and Titus and Epaphroditus apostles, right? But they're not the foundation of the New Testament church as the 12 apostles were as, as they're referred to. Um, the word in Greek just means one who is sent. So in a sense, somebody could have a ministry today where they, they say, well, I'm, I kind of have an apostolic ministry, right? But... According to scripture, an apostle must have been somebody that witnessed, like the capital A, must have been somebody that has witnessed the resurrection. Do you remember when they're replacing Judas in the book of Acts and they give qualifications? He has to be somebody that has, you know, witnessed the resurrection. By the way, this is how they decided what the canonization of scripture was, was the person that wrote the book. How do we get these books in the Bible? Well, we're in the New Testament. Were they written by an apostle or somebody that was informed by one of the 12 apostles, right? That's how it works. So I bring this up because there are people today that claim to have apostolic authority. There are ministries out there. Uh, one particularly, you know, there's this group of people called the New Apostolic Reformation, where the leaders of that, these self-proclaimed apostles, they claim to have the same sort of authority as these apostles. Now, if you run into that, that should put a check in your spirit. Listen, anytime you run into any Christian that calls themselves an apostle, you should have a check in your spirit because they're trying to claim that somehow they have some sort of authority that you don't have. Listen, nobody has authority over anybody. Jesus Christ has authority over us. That's it, right? Everybody, he's the one man, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? So I just bring that up because that's pretty popular these days to, to claim apostolic authority and it's a dangerous thing. So now, the names of the 12 are these, Simon, who's called Peter. Now, I love this guy. He had a foot-shaped hole in his mouth, right? <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? He's always putting his foot in his mouth. I like Peter. A lot of us take a lot of comfort from the guy because, you know, we see that, he, that Jesus could use a guy like this, even though that he spoke out of turn a lot of times. He talked too much. He made these bold claims. I'll follow you even to death, Lord. And then later on, like some little girls confronting him. You were with Jesus. No, I don't know him. And, uh, you know, isn't that nice to know? But here's the first one in the list. Um, it's always in the list of apostles. It's always Peter first and it's always Judas last. And I'm sure you can figure out why. Peter kind of functioned as the leader is what we gather. And then Judas, of course, he's always named last because of, uh, you know, he thought he had something better to do, right? Now, Andrew, his brother. Um, some commentators suggest, you know, that Andrew maybe, and, and it's a nice devotional thought. I don't know if there's any scriptural basis for it, um, but maybe he was in the shadow of his brother. You always see Andrew, his brother. Andrew, his brother. He's always labeled as the brother. So, so some, you know, pastors will try to bring out, well, God can call people even that are always in the shadow of others. And I don't know if there's any scriptural basis for that, but it is true. You know, maybe you feel like you've always been in the shadow of somebody else. Well, God can use you. 
James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, uh, they're called sons of thunder in, in another section of Scripture. Do you know why? Terrible temper. <laughs> Remember the one time that they came across some believers that were like doing ministry in a way that Jesus didn't, you know, they say, hey, they're over there doing that, but we're over there doing that. So why don't we pray some fire down on them, Lord? <laughs> like, no, <laughs> that's not a good idea. You want to, you, you see some people that aren't like you and you want to barbecue them? <laughs> like, that's not a good idea. But isn't that hopeful to know that Jesus calls these people this is God doing the calling, and he's calling people like this. By the way, when you read Luke's account, what happened right before Jesus called these guys? Anybody know? It says that Jesus labored like he prayed all night. Jesus, God in the flesh, prayed all night long, and these are the guys that he picked. Okay, just want to put that out there. Uh, next one, Philip and Bartholomew. Philip from Bethsaida, that's what we know from Scripture. We don't know anything about Bartholomew. Um, Nothing about him. Other than he's got a cool name. Does anybody name their kid that anymore? Bartholomew? Pretty cool name. Thomas, the next one, he's called the twin in John eleven sixteen. 16. This is the guy that questioned the resurrection, right? He says, I don't believe that until somebody shows me. And you know, by the way, we always call him Doubting Thomas. But, you know, apologetics ministries, they like Thomas because they say, Thomas is, he's just saying, let's go, let's get some proof here. Let's study. Uh, I think that's a cool thing because if you want proof, uh, Christianity can hold up to any scrutiny you can bring towards it and the Bible and Christ and all that stuff. And so maybe Thomas, rather than doubting Thomas, we'll call him Thomas the Apologist. I don't know. Like there's, you know, this is my opinion. James, uh, I'm sorry, skipped one. Matthew, the tax collector. I love that. In Mark and Luke, they don't mention Matthew's former profession. You know, they're gracious. They just say Levi who was, you know. But Matthew here he, he labels himself as I was a tax collector. And you guys know about tax collectors. We've talked about it a lot. Despised profession, right? So look at the humility of Matthew. And look at what he's doing. He's, he's kind of like placing himself lower because in turn it's, it's elevating Jesus all the more. It's saying, look at Jesus Christ is the one that hires people that, you know, he, he has to hire him. He calls them and he brings them in. Uh, even the types of people that ruined their lives before with bad decisions, Right? <laughs> Even the people that just did terrible things to other people in their past life, uh, you know, not past life in a reincarnation sense, that stuff's weird, but in, in their life before Christ, people that just ruined their life, hurt other people tremendously. God calls them. He restores them. Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus. There are four men in the New Testament named James, so it can be kind of confusing. This guy here, he's referred to as James the Less. That's how early church history uh, knows him. Um, one was just mentioned a second ago, James and John. Um, this guy is James the Less. Now, uh, there's another one uh, who wrote the epistle of James. That's actually Jesus' half-brother. When you read the book of James, that's Jesus' half-brother that wrote that book. Um, and he became a real influential leader in the church. And it's pretty interesting because uh, James, you know, on another note, not this James, but James that wrote the book of James, he became a believer like after he saw the resurrected Christ, you know. So it tells you that there must be some truth to the, you know, resurrection. It's more the proof of the authenticity of what the Bible says. James became a believer even though he thought Jesus was out of his mind at a certain point, right? Now, uh, Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, he's also referred to as Judas, the son of James. That's another James, one of the four that we were talking about. Simon the Canaanite. 
um, in other gospels called Simon the Zealot. Now, a zealot, what they were, were zealots were members of this revolutionary Jewish uh, political party. And what they were doing is they were seeking to overthrow the Roman government by force. They were like guerrilla warfare masters. And so interesting here, another, you know, guy that Jesus called uh, to, to serve him. And then Judas Iscariot, of course, the word Iscariot uh, means from, uh, probably meant from Kirioth. Um, it's a, just another town where he was probably, you know, Judas Iscariot is kind of saying he's Judas from Kirioth. Um, he's the guy that denied Jesus, sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, uh, then regretted it, went and hung himself. <clears throat> Are you guys surprised at Jesus' choices <laughs> right here? I mean, some of you aren't. You know the Lord, you've been walking for a while. But if, if, if this Christianity is kind of new, you know, you, you didn't realize that Jesus calls uh, misfits, <laughs> that Jesus calls regular people. Did you notice that there wasn't one scholar in that whole thing? There wasn't one, like, high priest. There wasn't one seminary graduate. There wasn't, you know, there's none of that stuff going on where you would think, I can't serve the Lord because I messed up. Listen, if you ever are reluctant to get involved in serving a church, or get involved in serving Jesus Christ, if you're ever reluctant, this list is so helpful to you because it reminds you that ultimately Jesus calls people and he transforms them and he equips them. You know, it's, it's not so much about you. And I'm not, I'm not saying this to be mean. Like, I'm just saying it's not so much about you as it is about what he can do with you. Like if you go and you see a big slab of marble, like I might look at that slab of marble and say, that's a slab of marble. What am I going to do with a slab of marble? But an artist that chisels and makes sculptures out of marble, he looks at that thing and he goes, no, not that one. Yep, this one. And he takes that one and, you know, he or she, and they, and they, they, they sculpt it into something beautiful that I could never seen. That's what Jesus wants to do with your life. You know, people might look at your life and say, I don't know, whatever. But Jesus might look at you and say, I can sculpt you and I can make you into something that you can't even imagine. Listen, guilt and shame, you know, is dealt with at the cross. And when that's dealt with, now what you need to do is you need to understand that Jesus has a plan for your life and he wants to work through you. So all these hindrances that you have, right, just let him go. Let him go to the cross. Take him to the cross. Remember back in chapter 9, Jesus says, pray that the Father would send laborers into his harvest. And then this chapter starts with laborers being sent into the harvest, right? So now they're sent out on their first short-term evangelistic local missions trip, the 12 sent. First of all, he's going to tell them where to go. They're going to go to the lost sheep of Israel, verse 5. These 12, Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sends them out with this unique authority to cast out demons and so on, all mentioned before. And now he sends them out on a unique mission, right? Now, he's not barring them from speaking to the Gentiles. You guys know what a Gentile is. A Gentile is just a scriptural word that what the Jews would do is they'd call everybody a Gentile that wasn't a Jew. Now, the Samaritans, however, were an interesting half-breed mix. They were Jews that mingled with pagans, and, they, and so the Jews kind of despised them, you know. Uh, and so what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying, you know, that the gospel's never meant to go to anybody but Jews. But what he's saying is on this short-term missions trip that I've given these guys authority for, I want them to go to these local Jews around them first. You know that in... Um, 
book of Romans, Paul says that the gospel goes to the Jew first and then to the Greek, right? And in Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 46, it says, Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, talking to the Jews. But since you reject it and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Every time Paul went on a missions trip in the book of Acts, he went into a city, he went to the synagogue, they rejected him. <laughs> One time, I love it, he gets kicked out of the synagogue and he goes across the street and starts a church in a guy's house, you know, I love it. And, uh, but the whole idea was, is the Jews are God's covenant people. Back in the book of Genesis chapter 12, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, when God tells Abraham that, you know, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to give you a people, and the whole world's going to be blessed through you. The Jews are God's covenant people, and so salvation would come to the Jews, their Messiah would come to them first, and the idea is that then they would be a blessing to the rest of the world, right? That's the plan. He says you're to go to the lost sheep. That term there, who are the lost sheep? Well, in a sense, everybody outside of Christ is lost, right? All we like sheep have gone astray. That's the statement that's true of every human. When you go up to the maternity ward and you go and you see the little babies in there, you could put a label on every one of them, lost sheep, because all we are like sheep have gone astray. We're all born in Adam, right? We're all born in Adam and Eve, essentially. Adam is our spiritual uh, head. And so we're born in him, so we're born in sin. So everybody is in that sense, right? But what he's talking about is, uh, Jeremiah talks about it, chapter 50, verse 6. My people have been lost sheep, God says. Their shepherds have led them astray. Now, remember when Jesus looked out and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd? That's these people. They had been under the leadership of the Israel, you know, of the Jewish religious establishment for so long that they were like lost sheep. Although they had religious leaders, they were worthless. And so Jesus sees them like lost sheep. And that's who he's talking about. He's saying, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans yet, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go to those who are heavily burdened and he will give them rest, right? Now, so that's where they're to go. Verse 7 and 8, first part of verse 8. You know when uh, your outline says, or, you know what, Okay, I didn't print it on your outline. I'm not going to talk about that. Never mind. Okay. So now he's going to tell them what to say. Verse 7, he says, As you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Use the authority that was given. Now, as you go, preach. Now, that word preach there is the word herald in the Greek. It just means to herald. You know what a herald is? Remember the boy in the corner that used to say, extra, extra, read all about it. He doesn't have a message of his own. He's just there saying, extra, read all about it. Here's the news. He doesn't come up with a message of his own. He just announces uh, a message that's already, you know, somebody else's message. And that's what Jesus is telling them to do. He's saying, go preach, uh, go announce that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message John the Baptist had, the same message that Jesus preached, right? Now, I think this is, we should pause here for a second because I think this is important. We've all been called, obviously we know this, to preach, to announce the message of Jesus. Now, the reason I say this is because, you know, today you could easily go up to a lot of Christians today and you could say, um, tell me what the message is of Christianity, right? 
And they will, they'll get this look on their face where they go, hmm, like they're going like to ponder and they're going to say, you know, to me, Jesus is kindness. And you're like, okay, well, Jesus was kind. You know, you know they get into this like they're going to, like, like, like what the message of Jesus is, is somewhat subjective. You understand what I mean? You could talk to a lot of Christians today and say, what is the message of Jesus? And they will think it's subjective. What does Jesus mean to them? And, and that's valid what Jesus means to you. That's valid. But God help us, we need more Christians that know what the message of Jesus Christ is, right? Like if somebody was to come and ask you, what is the message of Jesus Christ? Would you announce the message that Jesus has been giving to disciples for thousands of years? Or would you put your own imagination into it? Would you make up stuff? Would you come up with stuff? You know, we are to preach the message of Jesus first and foremost, not our own message. Now you say, that's great news because look, I don't really have a message. <laughs> good. You don't need to have one. You know, you don't have to be clever. Uh, you don't have to be good with words, so to speak. You can just say what Jesus said. And what did he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand, so you need to repent of your sins and trust in me. That was his message. Now, that, I think we should really get that in our minds, that why would you want to preach a different message than what Jesus preached? That's why there's so many false conversions today. That's why there's so many people sitting in churches that think it's all about self-help and, and um, just trying to get, like, a boost. You know, they're just trying to get a pep talk. You know, that's, that's, there's so many false conversions in Christianity because so many people are coming up with their own message. They're not necessarily preaching uh, the message that Jesus um, came to announce, right? He says, go out and heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. They're to go out with the same message and the same authority and the deeds will confirm the message and the message will explain the deeds. When they see these deeds happening, these Jews would say, you know what, this is really reminiscent of what the whole Old Testament said the Messiah was going to do. And it would, it would come together. Now, raise the dead, right? That's a huge thing. Um, it's interesting because you see that in Acts chapter 9 and chapter 20. You see this happening through Paul and through different people. You see Paul using this authority. I think Paul was probably the last one with this authority, you know, in the Bible. Um, you don't really see it anymore. You don't see this stuff in the epistles. Um, <clears throat> these, I want to make notice, too, that these weren't common things that happened. These are miraculous things that happened. Um, I bring that up because... Um, it's important today because a lot of people make some claims. I've run into some evangelists that claim that they have raised the dead. And I will tell you what, I went and I researched it and I found all kinds of videos online and I found all kinds of people's testimony. However, I didn't find any proof of it. Now, I am not down on the fact that God can do everything and he can do anything and he does things. But man, um, this stuff that was going on here was unique, right? You read church fathers, you read church history. This stuff was unique. And I'm not saying God doesn't do these things now. Um, we should have such a hunger for God to do the miraculous as his people. But we should also have our brains attached to where we just don't take every little thing that people say. And, you know what I mean? Let's, uh, a lot of phonies try to say things to make money for their ministries. You know what I mean? They, they really do. There's a guy on TV that sells miracle spring water. You know, and if you just 
tithe to his ministry, you know, you'll get the miracle spring water in the mail and you can just, you know, it's like Jack and the Beanstalk. Now, but I want to make a point before we move on that I don't want us to fall off the horse on one side or, or another with this when it comes to the miraculous. You need to ride that thing right in the middle where it's like, I 100% believe that God can do all things. I know he does things and there are legitimate real testimonies of God doing things. But at the same time, I don't welcome anything in the name of Jesus. I don't do that. You know, um, People say a lot of things. You know? So don't fall off the horse either, either side here. Um, we're... Technically, we're a charismatic church. That means that we believe in all of the gifts of the Spirit are for today. We're not a hyper-charismatic church, um, and we're not a cessationist church, which means that the gifts are dead. No, we believe all the gifts are active. Don't fall off the horse on one side or another. So they were to preach and to go to those with great needs, and they were to minister to them. How are they to fund the trip? Speaking of money. Verse 8, the second part. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor bag for your journey nor two tunics nor sandals nor staves for a worker is worthy of his food. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there until you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. That first line there, freely you have uh, received, so freely give. That's a good principle for ministry. He's saying, don't go around and charge for the healings, right? You know, don't go around and say, oh, you're, you're, I, I've got this power from Jesus to raise the dead. How about this? Let me start a ministry. You start tithing into it. And once I start getting, you know, God's work needs money, you know, and then at that point, then I'll start raising the dead. You know what I mean? He's, don't do that. And real pl- practically, this is why we don't ever pass a plate here. We don't ever want anybody to feel obligated to give here. God has given so freely to me, so freely to my wife, that we just, we give it away. You know what I mean? Now, so nobody will ever charge you to come here, and you'll never feel pressured that you have to give. Uh, The offering box is back there for people that are, they they understand that God wants you to give. Uh, He commands it. But you need to hear that from God. You need to hear that from His Spirit. You don't need to hear that from me, you know? And so that's why we never do that here. We're... I'm against it. I'm, a, I'm against making people feel uncomfortable if they won't give. You know, I, I think that's wrong. So he says, provide uh, all this stuff. He goes through this list and not very practical. Jesus, you're sending us on a mission trip. I think what we need to do is sit down and have a strategy meeting for the next two months. Let's get the, commi- uh, you know, let's get the committee together. Let's plan everything out. Let's get a good bank account going. Uh, why don't we get some extra supplies? Once all this is ready, then we'll go on the missions trip. Jesus is saying, no, don't even, don't even go get like another coat, you know, just go. And here's, here's something interesting I want to point out to you. Um, it's kind of an aside, but it deals with this text. Look in there where it says uh, in verse 10, no staffs. Now, have you read Mark's account of this? Mark 6, 8 says, he commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. Wait a minute. Is this a Bible contradiction? I will tell you this, that contradictions like this are things that, like if you go to like an atheist website that they're pointing out Bible contradictions, they'll point out stuff like this, okay? And so some Christians get really worried about this, but here's what you have to do. I want to show you kind of how to do this, okay? Um, So first of all, we think about this. We say, is 
Matthew and Mark, are they both saying the same thing? I mean, it seems like it. Is Matthew saying, don't take a staff? And Mark's saying, do take a staff? Well, let me, let me work through this with you. So in Mark 6, 8, he commands them to take along nothing except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper, and their money belts, okay? <clears throat> he says, except a staff. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 9, how that verse starts, it says, provide. Do you notice that there in verse 9 in your text? Look how it says provide, okay? In Mark chapter 6, verse 8, it says, uh, take along nothing except for your staff. Two different verbs. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's the word provide. In the Gospel of Mark, it's the verb translated take. Two different verbs. In the Gospel of Matthew, the word translated provide means don't go acquire. Don't go acquire extra. In Mark, the Greek reveals that he's saying, take along your staff. The idea is, go out and take your walking stick, but don't go get extra stuff. Don't go provide for yourself. Don't go acquire extra things. And that's, I'm not a Greek scholar, but that's, I know how to read the Greek scholars a little bit. And that's what they say is, is a common, you know, these things are people get bent out of shape about them. But if you just look at what's being said, um, you know, I bring this up because uh, there are seriously some skeptics out there that are so scholarly, but don't think through these things to this level. So, Matthew and Mark are saying two different things. He goes on in verse 10, he says, For a worker is worthy of his food. Although they are not to charge, they are to receive hospitality and support. These ministers are to be ministered to by those they minister to. I tried to say that five times fast. He says, Now whatever city or town you go into, inquire in it who is worthy. What that means is, you know, essentially some are going to receive the message and some aren't. That's what the term worthy here means. If, they're, if they don't have a problem with the gospel and they receive the apostles, they receive their message, then go stay with them. He says in verse 11, he says, stay there until you go out. This probably means like, just stay put. Like you're going to go out on the missions trip. If somebody receives you, they receive the message, stay put there. Even if like, you know, the neighbor's cooking stovetop for dinner and they've got better accommodations, you know, like you don't need to go and hop around just to find, you know, just, just stay where you're at. You know, that's what he's likely getting at. Most of the commentators lean that way. And he says, when you go into a household, greet it if the household is worthy. Verse 13, let your peace come upon it. If they appear to receive you in the message, that's where you stay. Not a bunch of planning, strategizing, gathering provisions and supplies. No, just go out and preach and rely on God to take care of you through people. Pretty cool. He's teaching them dependence upon him. Now, look at what to do with those who reject. Uh, verse 13, he says, but if it's not worthy, talking about the house, maybe they receive, you know, don't receive the gospel. Let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet Assuredly, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now, that's heavy duty, okay? 
if the house rejects the gospel, they reject you. Maybe they even appear to receive you at first, but the longer you're there, they start realizing, you know, I don't know about this stuff. You know, the light's shining in my darkness. You better get out. Kick the dust, shake the dust off your feet. Now, you might think that that's just kind of a thing of saying, oh, just blow it off, whatever, just, just move on, right? But it means far more than that to the Jewish culture. To shake the dust off your feet is essentially... So the Jews, when they would travel through Gentile places, once they would get out of city limits, they'd shake the dust off because they didn't even want to take dust from the Gentiles with them. That's how much they hated the Gentiles. I mean, they thought hell was, you know, they thought Gentiles were created to, for firewood in hell. You know, they hated them. So what Jesus is telling them to do is bad. Like, as far as they would receive it, they would say, wow, that is insulting. It's more insulting than like flipping somebody the bird, you know what I mean? It, this is like saying your whole town is like a bunch of pagans or your home is like a bunch of, you know, godless pagans. And they're Jews, so they would just not take kindly to this. So then Jesus goes on and he says, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of uh, judgment than for that city. You guys know Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Familiar with it? You've heard the word sodomy? It's the word for like, you know, homosexual sex, right? Um, you know, it's you guys know what it means? That's where it comes from is Sodom because Sodom was known for its homosexual activity and not just that, bunch of, it, it was just an immoral place. It was like, you know, uh, as immoral as you could think. And so God, you know, without warning, he did tell a, a family there that a, the judgment was coming, but fire and brimstone just, just judged it, just wiped it out uh, because of their immorality. And um, so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying people that reject this free offer of salvation, this free offer to come out of their sin and darkness, those that receive the king, they fail to receive the king, they reject him. He says, God, I got to tell you, it's going to be bad for them. They're going to receive judgment, right? If you reject Jesus Christ's offer of salvation, then you're going to continue in the state that you were born in, which is sinful, which is on the way to hell, um, People say, why does God send people to hell? He doesn't send people to hell. You're born with the qualifications of that which of a person that's going to go to hell. Remember the, the incubator baby picture in the maternity ward? Lost sheep. You're born lost on your way to hell. And Jesus comes into your life uh, through a preacher, through however he does it, through the word. And he says, look, you're on your way to hell, but Jesus wants to save you out of that destiny. He wants to change your life, Right? But if you reject that, you're going to continue on. If you're walking off of a cliff and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, dude, you're walking off of a cliff, and you say, oh, that's good. I'm going to continue going. And then you walk off the cliff, man, that's on you, right? And, but that's what Jesus is saying. And I think there's a very important principle uh, in this, that when you're sharing the message of Jesus with your loved ones, you can take a cue from Jesus that it's good to warn people about the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Sometimes we think we're going to just nice people into the kingdom, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't nice people into the kingdom. Jesus didn't go around and say, I preach the gospel everywhere, but I only use words when necessary. That's a real popular thing with the hipster Christians these days that don't want to be, they want to be like woke and, and like non-confrontational. We don't want to talk about things like hell and all this stuff. We just want to talk about how great Jesus is. Man, Jesus is great. He's great, but he's so great that we should learn how he evangelized. 
he warned people and he told his disciples, he said, give them a sign that, you know, shake the dust off. Give them a sign that they're in trouble. You know, if somebody's rejecting the gospel and you're, you're making them feel okay about that, like there's no consequence, that's bad, man. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, uh, you know, it talks about how if you don't warn people, the blood's on your hands. I cringe for families that say, I'm just going to let my kids make their own decision about Jesus Christ when they get older. I cringe for those people, you know, like I'm not going to force anything on them. Okay, man. I don't know about that. No. Let's make some application, then we're done here. So we'll go to the Lord's table after, after this. Now, I want to recognize as we make application here that I, I want you to know that I recognize the fact that you guys are busy. I know some of you are incredibly busy. And so the last thing you need is a pastor week after week after week exhorting you and exhorting you and exhorting you. And you're like, I don't have time to do this stuff that he's telling me to do. Like, I can't, I have a life. I'm trying to raise kids. I've got a job. I've got a husband that's a schlep or whatever, you know, or I don't know what it is, you know? I mean, you know what I'm saying? So I recognize that you're going through life and it's difficult. I get it, you know? But don't, you know, so don't take this as condemnation when, when we get to the application sections of a, of a, you know, I understand not everybody does what I do. Not everybody's called to this, to pulpit ministry. Not everybody's called to sell everything and go to India. I get it, you know? But you are called to serve Jesus Christ in your life where you're at. And so these applications, you always got to take them through that lens of, of how can I live this in my life where I'm at now? You know, because you are called to do that. You are sent. You are a sent one. You know, you're to be living the sent life. You see that logo, the salt life? You know, you're not called to live the salt life, maybe the salt and light life. You're called to live the sent life, Right? So here, just these things might help you, you know, in that. I, like I say, I want to be sensitive to you. I understand, you know, life's busy and all that. Um, but one thing you can probably find some motivation in is like God uses ordinary people. We talked about that. You might not feel like you're qualified, um, but our hangups are removed when we really let the reality of the scripture speak to us. When we see these people that God called, it takes away our hangups. It takes away this whole, like, I'm nobody special. Um, that's the whole thing is Jesus is special. We're whosoever's. doesn't matter who we are. doesn't matter who I am. I don't need a praise. I don't need a pat on the back. I don't need to be special. You know, I just, I'm just a nobody telling somebody about somebody, right? He uses ordinary people to gather the lost right where they are. There's lost people all around you. And God specifically has called you and he's put you in the place that you're at. You might complain about the city you live in, the town you live in. You might complain about the job you have. You might complain about everything that's going on in your life. You might complain about the fact that you got to go to the doctor so many times. Listen, the doctor sent you to that doctor because those people need the message of Christ and he put a Christian there, right? You have to take that seriously. God puts you in the neighborhood that you're in because he wants a Christian in that neighborhood. You've got to take that seriously. God equips the ordinary people that he calls. I'm not qualified. I'm not equipped. Good news. Uh, neither were these people. They just got up and left their tax booth and they followed. 
And God equips them. God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Most times, he equips the called. There's nothing wrong with calling or being equipped. There's nothing wrong with seminary. There's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But you do not need any of that to serve Jesus Christ. If you know how to be saved, you can be used for somebody else to be saved. That's that simple. If you don't, if you don't know how to be saved, you need to figure that out. <laughs> you know? uh, but if you do know how to be saved, you can tell somebody else how to be saved. And, and that's good. <clears throat> I want to make this note too, that how does God equip the people? Well, experience, but 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this is, you should have this memorized, you know, it, this would help you. Uh, it's a good memory verse. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. Now, Fully equipped for every good work. Why? Because of the Word of God, the Bible. Now you might say, "Wow, I got to read all these other books. I got to read, you know, this Christian psychology. I got to read this self-help. I got to read a book about counsel." You don't. You don't need any of that. It's not saying. I'm not saying it's not helpful, but you don't need anything but the Bible to be fully equipped to do what God's called you to do. That's exciting, because I can only afford one book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's all you need is that one book. Then there's another integral part of it. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You need that. You need to be equipped in the word. You need to be discipled by somebody. You need to have a pastor or, or somebody or a mentor discipling you, challenging you, somebody that you are accountable to when you sin and mess up. They're saying, hey, brother, you know, let's get back on track. Hey, sister, let's pray. Let's repent, you know. And then you need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to be anointed by the Spirit and empowered. And, you know, you're, you're, you're dressed for success if you're wearing the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you that. Now, God's people, next point, is they ought to live simply and just trust him for provision, right? Just like that nice saying, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. Here's another one for you. Where God guides, God provides. And I'll tell you, where God guides, God provides is so true. I have tested it. <clears throat> he's always met every one of my needs. He hasn't always given me everything I want, but a lot of times he's given me everything I want. He's given me more than I need. There's a psalm, I can't remember if it's in the Psalms or the Proverbs, but it's Psalms. He says, I've never seen a servant of the Lord begging for bread. It's true. God, if anything, my wife and I need to slow down on the bread. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So uh, God does this exceedingly abundantly more than we can ever ask or think. And that's so true. You give your heart to the service of the Lord. You say, I'm committed to you. I'm in the Lord's army. I'm committed. He takes care of you, you know. And I know there are testimony after testimony in this church of that because he's that good. His promise is true. Where God guides, God provides. Now, God's people ought to preach his message, not their own. Listen, if you're leading a Bible study and somebody asks you a question and you, and you start making up an answer, stop doing that immediately, Right? If somebody, if you're at coffee with somebody and they're saying, what about this? And you don't know the answer and you're making it up, stop doing that. Tell them, have enough humility to tell people that you don't know that you'll go find the answer and preach his message, not your own, right? Okay, people ought to warn, last point, people ought to warn others of the consequences of rejecting the gospel. I'm not saying you gotta be a meanie about it. I'm just saying, man, if a doctor was to give you you go to a doctor, you get a diagnosis, and they say, you've got a, you've got a uh, 
do something because if you don't do it, you're going to die. <coughs> what kind of a doctor would it be if he says, thanks for coming in and visiting. Aren't I a nice doctor? Aren't I so nice? Look how great I am. I'll make your life just filled with abundance. How about health, wealth, and abundance? But then doesn't tell you about the fact that you're going to die if you don't have this operation. You know, like bad doctor, right? Perhaps you've never responded to God's offer of salvation and you're still in that state of being lost and you're lost and dead in trespasses and sins. And, um, you know, as Jesus would tell you, if you're going to reject him, it's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're going to reject Jesus Christ here today, if you're hearing the words coming out of my mouth, sitting in this place, know without a doubt, without with all certainty that you have broken God's laws. You've fallen short of his glory. You've fallen short of perfection. And if you deny that, if you're denying that, then what you're doing is you're rejecting. You're rejecting Jesus Christ because the Bible says, look, the first thing is you need to admit um, that you've fallen short of God's glory. You've lied and you've cheated and you've stolen, and because of that, you are on your way to hell. And that's the truth for everybody in here. If I haven't come and received pardon, I'm on death row. There's no way around it. I can diagnose your sinfulness right now. I can say, have you ever lied? Yeah, I've told a lie. Okay, one lie, one time, that's it. That's enough to keep you out of heaven because heaven's perfect. God is perfect. If you've lied one time in your life, you've fallen short of the glory of God and you need to be saved, right? If you reject that, you're on your way to hell. That's what the Bible teaches clearly. Now, all of us are in that category. Every single one of us is in that category. God's Spirit makes that real to you. So you can sit here today and you can reject that. If that's what you choose to do, he'll let you do that. God does not override your free will. But he will convict your conscience. When you read the Ten Commandments, see, a lot of people are confused about Christianity. They think the Ten Commandments are a list of things to obey to make you right with God. Not true. The Ten Commandments are God's perfect holy standard. If you could live those things perfectly, there'd be no reason for Jesus Christ to have to die in your place. But when you read those Ten Commandments, you should be like, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not, you know, take the Lord's name in vain, thou shalt not, you know, lust after people committing adultery, all these different things. And by the time you get done with that list, right, you go, oh my gosh, I'm busted. I'm a sinner. Now you're in the position to understand why you need to be saved. If I could obey the Ten Commandments, see, God doesn't grade on a curve. Well, I do pretty good at the Ten Commandments. And God knows I've never killed anybody and God, you know, and, and all this stuff. So I get like an 80%. So I think, you know, God grades on like the public school system. So if you just squeak by with a D, you pass, right? That is not how God grades. Perfection or death is what the Bible says, right? That's why all of us are jacked up without Jesus Christ. You understand this? Now, God doesn't want his creation to die and perish in hell without him forever. He doesn't want that. He created people to be in fellowship with him. But in the Garden of Eden, he gave Adam and Eve the opportunity to exercise their free will in a way that would be disobedient to him. Why? Because God wants your love. If I say, Carter, I want you to love me, or, or Claire, I want you to love me, and I, take every, and I say, no, I'm going to force you to love me, because either that or I'll beat you until you love me. 
Well, that's not love. You can't force love. So when God has Adam and Eve and he says, I want you to love me, they're in the Garden of Eden, he has to give them some choice to not love him. You understand? And so he gives them this tree. He says, don't, just you could do anything you want in here. Just don't do that. And what do they do? They do that. You say, I would have never done that. Those stupid people. You would have done the same thing, man. You know? How does that work out for you when somebody tells you, don't uh, do this? How about a little kid? You draw a line. You say, don't cross that line. They all go right up to it. Then one comes and pushes one over it. (laughs) You know? You're like, that's human nature. The sign on the yard says, don't walk on the grass. You walk on the grass. You're riding your bike around the corner of it. Mr. Wilson's coming out of the house yelling at you, Dennis. Listen, God gave Adam and Eve a choice because he wants real genuine love. And because of that choice, sin came into the world. Sin and death came into the world then. From then on, humans, now they die. From then on, humans were ashamed. They tried to hide themselves from God. They started pointing the finger at one another, blaming one another. Eventually, their kids murder one another, right? This is when sin and death came into the world. But God said that's not his original intention. He doesn't want that. And so what God did, I won't say it's not God's intention. I don't, I don't understand the complexities of God's mind, how he made the cross, did he mean for this to happen? I don't get all that. What I do understand is God will override your free will just like he didn't override Adam and Eve's. And so when you hear the Spirit speaking to your conscience saying, yeah, you know what, this guy's right. I'm a sinner. The Bible's right. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. God sent away for you to be saved. He made a way for you to be saved. And he came and he died on a cross and he took the, all the penalty that your sin deserves as an individual and he put it on his son. And he did that for the sin of the world. All the sin of the world laid upon Jesus Christ, not just for some elect few. And so now anybody that puts their faith in Jesus Christ, what happened at the cross, that legal transaction of all the sin of the world being paid for, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the benefits of that are applied to your life. God says, if these people will have faith in the way that I have chosen to make salvation available, if they will believe it, then I will put my son's perfect record on them. To make it very simple here, you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and Christ is reaching his hand to you. You just need to trust him personally. You need to trust him and say, okay, I believe. I'll trust in you to bring me home to heaven. I'll trust that your death on the cross was sufficient for my sin. If you haven't done that, today's a good day to do that. Maybe you want to roll up your sleeves to serve the Lord today, and I hope that that's the case. I hope you've been inspired by this. And so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we love you, and thank you for calling us. Thank you that you call misfits, Lord. Thank you that you equip us. Like the song said, God, you are so good. Amen. Okay.